Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and this week we'll be discussing another quiet week in Westminster, the Tory leadership race, which is now Theresa May versus Andrea Leadsom, and the long-awaited Chilcot report into the Iraq war. To discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined by Philip Stevens, our chief political commentator, Martin Wolf, our chief economics commentator, Rula Khalaf, our deputy editor, and James Bliss, leader writer. Thank you all for joining. So we've had two ballots in the Tory leadership contest, which is also the race to be the next prime minister. And we now know that Britain is going to have its second female leader. It's a fight between the Home Secretary, Theresa May, and the Energy Minister, Andrea Leadsom. And much like the referendum, it's all going to be remain versus leave once again. So, Philip, it, when you look at the outside of the contest, it very much is a stark choice between experienced Theresa May, who's been Home Secretary for a long, long period, versus Andrea Leadsom, who is a keen Brexiteer, but had very little experience at the top of government. Yes, I think that's so. I think to start with, I'd say the only thing good really about this Conservative Party contest is that uh, we are going to end up with a woman prime minister, and that's a good thing. Um, but I'm not sure, though Theresa May has um, uh, some qualities and she does have the experience you um, you speak of in the Home Office, but only in the Home Office. I'm not sure that were there a, a bigger set of candidates, one would naturally gravitate towards her. Andrea Leadsom, I think, is it's, it's quite obvious. She's the Ian Duncan Smith candidate. And we saw in 2002 that the Tory party in the country can, on occasion, go for someone who they think is like them, but is not at all in touch with the concerns and preoccupations of the country. And this at a time when Europe is such a huge challenge. It's actually interesting because Ian Duncan Smith is one of um, Andrea Leadsom's backers and a lot of the policies discussed are very pre-Tory modernisation stuff that she's questioned the gay marriage legislation, wants to review HS2, review Heathrow expansion, reintroduce fox hunting. Um, It's quite odd to see the Tory party going back on itself and choosing this candidate after Mr Cameron's two election victories. Well, perhaps that's so, and I think that one would have to say that Theresa May is still the favourite. The problem is, though, I think that uh, Andrea Leadsom holds up a mirror, if you like, to the average Tory party association. She's one of us, they'll be saying, as many in the Labour Party said of Jeremy Corbyn. He's one of us. And the problem is these activists in both parties are more and more divorced from not just the mainstream, but 
any sort of majority opinion in the country at large. One thing, Martin, over your columns the past few weeks, you've been getting more and more disgruntled, I would say, at the state of British politics. And when you look at this race now, it's a very odd race because the country's going to have no say over who this person is. Both candidates have not said they wouldn't call a general election. So which one worries you more, the prospect of Miss May or Miss Ledsom? Well, I think um, uh, Ms. Ledsom certainly worries me more, but they both worry me a great deal. I think we have to understand the context. We have now voted, in my view, it's a gigantic error in every possible way to leave the EU. Uh, This has created an immense set of complex challenges in terms of domestic politics, in terms of domestic administration, in terms of negotiation with the rest of the EU on almost every issue that affects us. It's the biggest challenge I think the British government has confronted since the Second World War. We want a highly experienced team led by a brilliant prime minister who is able to to manage this immensely dangerous and difficult process. It seems to me neither comes close to what you need in terms of experience and demonstrated talent. But of course, at least with Theresa May, we seem to have somebody who has a sort of basic administrative competence, which is nothing like enough, but it's something. In the case of her opponent, I'm not at all clear that she comes close even to that. So I find the situation we're now moving towards with this vote and this selection really, really frightening. It's quite interesting as well that the media coverage over the past few weeks has been pretty much dominated by Labour's leadership woes and the Conservatives' leadership woes, while the big Brexit question seems to have been forgotten, at least temporarily. The circus, I'm afraid, of politics is always better immediate copy and more comprehensible to people than this immense task of incredible tedium in a way that we've now by accident almost, set ourselves upon. It's a terribly, a a terrible combination because the process of actually carrying through this intention, if we do, is going to involve years and years of work. Would you agree, Philip, is it all that bad looking for Britain? Well, look, I think the process of leaving the EU is, one, immensely complex, two, very difficult, and three, potentially very, very damaging both to our prosperity and indeed to our security. Now, it's often said, look, there's going to be hard bargaining with Europe. The other 27 are not going to give way. But we're not even close to that position. We have to agree among ourselves first what Brexit looks like. Do we want to stay in the single market or do we want to slam the door on free movement? And it's not clear to me that the Tory party under Theresa May or Andrea Leadsom can actually come to an agreement itself, let alone win over the rest of the country and Scotland and Northern Ireland and London, this great city that we're in, that voted to remain. One of the things that worries me the most, Martin, about Miss Ledsom is the fact she said she will trigger Article 50 very quickly, that she, you know, she's the full-on Brexit, we need to get on with it. Um, and she gave this major speech on the economy this morning, which was one of the shortest major speeches 
I think I've seen in politics. It had no content and it was basically saying, let's get away with the pessimists, let's abolish the pessimists, was her main message of that. Um, if we, if she does become Prime Minister in a few weeks' time, we'll know at the beginning of September, and then does trigger Article 50, won't that put us in a rather difficult situation because we're not ready, we don't have the trade negotiators on side, and as, as Philip said, we have no idea what we even want. Well, it rather reminds me of the famous remark made about Admiral Jellicoe during the First World War, which was that uh, as as, um, running head of the fleet, that he could lose the war in an afternoon. And I think Andrea Leadsom could lose the prosperity of this country in a a month or two. If we trigger Article 50, uh, we will, I think, almost certainly end up being out of the EU within two years. It's very, very unlikely to be extended. Uh, We would have no negotiating leverage in that situation. There's no reason why they would start talking to us about post-exit trade or other situation. So we would lose access to the single market. We would be in limbo, complete limbo. Uh, The economy would undoubtedly be immensely damaged. And uh, there wouldn't be any simple way out. It could be a decade of damage. So, yes, if she's as simple-minded as this, and it sounds awful, this drivel about pessimism, which is just an attempt to analyze the situation, um, the, the results of this complete infantilism, which is what we're now watching, in my view, uh, could be a catastrophe for ordinary men and women in this country. There's an irony here. Andrea Leadsom says she's the heir to Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher reshaped our economy and, if you like, presided over this big shift from old manufacturing to new services. The part of the economy most threatened, I think, by Brexit are these new services industries running from London all across, all down the cross to the west of England, to Bristol and beyond, that M4 corridor. Industries, mobile communications, digital industries, as well as financial services that depend utterly on access to the single market. So on her current trajectory, uh, Andrea Leadsom would destroy the legacy of Margaret Thatcher in economic terms. Now, let's go back to a point you made earlier about Mr Corbyn, which I think is a very interesting one, because um, it strikes me that the similarities we have here are... There's a few things. For example, Mr Corbyn is ideologically very pure. His anti-capitalism, anti-neoliberalism, all this kind of stuff, and the grassroots supporters in the Labour Party love it. Um, but he's entirely divorced from where his MPs are. Now, if Andrea Leadsom does win, only um, 80 or so of the MPs have backed her, 60% backed Theresa May, and you've got that same split there again. And we've seen Nigel Farage, leader of UKIP, has endorsed Andrea Leadsom. So you could see entries and posts of a lot of UKIPers join the Conservatives, and the Conservatives would become essentially a Brexit party and move to the right, which doesn't seem a very good thing having the, the um, Labour on the far left as well. Yeah, I think there is that danger. I think that the ideological distance from uh, of Jeremy Corbyn from his MPs is probably significantly greater than that from Andrea Leadsom from Tory MPs. But when you have, as we saw when Ian Duncan Smith was leader in opposition, when you have this great dislocation between a party in the country um, and the party at Westminster... The push is to the extreme. The country wants to take the Conservatives to the right and Labour to the left. In that wonderful 
poem, uh, The Second Coming, W.B. Yeats, asked whether the centre could hold. Well, I think in Britain it's beginning to disappear. This is a vein, and it's not just in Britain we're seeing this, Martin, obviously in America and Austria and lots of other places where these radical forces are taking hold. It's quite worrying, and if this does happen, the Conservatives do go to the right direction. What happens to the centre ground of British politics? You know, who does your average Joe in the country vote for? It's very interesting to imagine, and of course it's outside my sphere of expertise, what an election between a Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour Party and an Andrea Leadsom-led Conservative Party would look like and what the outcome might be. Presumably many potential UKIP voters might well go with this new Conservative Party. It would clearly leave a huge gap in the centre, and I I tend to believe nature abhors a vacuum. So in the end, the centre will be filled by something, but it could take decades. And in the meantime, I fear that with this sort of polarised politics between two sides, but neither of which I think have anything useful to offer... um, I fear the country could simply be destroyed, or at least immensely, uh, possibly even irreparably irreparably damaged. People's assumption that it will always recover could be too optimistic. Certainly these are very disturbing uh, times. Because we've heard this, there was a rumour on Thursdays we're recording this, that if it had been Michael Gove, he would have dropped out to essentially make this a May coronation and get on with fixing the country. Because at the moment we've got a big lack of leadership. We've got the several weeks now while the Tory party decides which candidate it wants to be its next leader. Um, at which point do we feel the Brexit effect or kicking? Because a lot of Brexit folks have been saying, oh, you were all far too pessimistic. The FTSE's fine. The pound's rebounded a little bit. Um, but, it's, but there's still a lot of very worrying signs under the surface that the next prime minister is going to face an almighty load of economic bad news in the autumn. Well, I don't think the FTSE tells you anything. You have to remember that... Uh, it's, an, it's an index in pounds and the pound has declined in value. So all foreign profits are much more valuable. And a huge number of British firms in the FTSE actually derive an immense part of their earnings from abroad. So it's not surprising that that index has held up. We're not expecting a world recession, just a UK recession. The pound has gone down a long way. There's not been no significant re- rebound so far. Um, that's part of the adjustment process. But the really big issue is what's going to happen to the real economy. Uh, that that's, of course, far too early to tell, but the, I think it is highly likely that we will, and it's more or less a consensus view now, that we will see a very significant slowdown, uh, rising unemployment, uh, declining revenues, a bigger f- fiscal deficit. OK, that's not an immediate challenge. We Government can sell its bonds all right. The Bank of England can support it. But it's going to affect ordinary people. And if the uncertainty associated with this and the shock associated with associated with this goes on for some time, and it could, the economic damage, in my view, will be substantial. If you talk to executives at British companies and big multinationals, they're unanimous. They're not investing and they're not going to invest until they have clarity on where Britain's going to be vis-a-vis its European partners, whether we're going to be in the single market or out of it, whether they're going to be trade or investment deals. So I think it's pretty certain by the end of this year the economy will be moving into recession and that is going to make things even harder for the government whether led by Andrea Leadsom or by Theresa May. I've just got one final quick thing which of course I forgot to ask you Philip at the very beginning who do you think is going to win? 
I think Theresa May is going to win. But that's because if we end up with one party uh, led by Andrea Leadsom and another by Jeremy Corbyn, I will think very carefully about shooting myself. And now in a welcome break from all the leadership contests and coups, we had the Chilcot report into the Iraq war. After a seven-year gestation period, this 2.6 million word epic investigation reveals the failures in planning, intelligence and most strikingly in Tony Blair's leadership and style of government when he took the country to war in 2003. So, James Blitz, you you were involved covering the Iraq war as political editor, I believe, for the FT during 2003. And what did the report tell you about the preparations and what went wrong and also about Tony Blair's style of government, which you must have been aware of at that time? Well, uh, funnily enough, I think uh, the style of government thing was the thing we weren't aware of. If one looks back honestly, and I think everybody has to look back honestly, not only the decisions taken, but also journalists must look back. I was part of the Downing Street lobby at the time. Blair was in a commanding position in politics. I think people sometimes forget that. He had won his second uh, landslide majority just two years earlier. And a lot of what Tony Blair said and what was in the September dossier of 2002 was taken at face value. One must almost remember that. That's as a sort of precursor to the argument. What the Chilcot report was, was a definitive judgment. It is definitive. This is the only time we've ever had a sweeping report in Britain, official report into an entire foreign policy exercise, a military exercise from start to finish. And it was a coruscating judgment, a, a damning judgment of the way in which the decision making was taken. It did not accuse Tony Blair of being a liar who had deliberately made things up. It did not say the war was illegal. But at every level, the uh, way in which the decision-making was taken, both on the diplomatic side and the military side, was done far too quickly. Chilcot came to the view that more time should have been given for a diplomatic solution and should have been. The war was not a last resort. Um, the decision-making was taken on the basis of intelligence evidence, which was flammed up far too much, was not as hard as had been, had been stated. And the UK government did not achieve its war aims because it managed the war very badly. So it wasn't so much discovering things. There were lots of details that were discovered, new things about the way in which SIS operated, the really flimsy basis of the evidence. But it's the judgments that stand. They are the things that will be remembered. Because really the most striking lines in the report for me was this note that went from Tony Blair to George Bush in 2002 before the invasion began, which is that I am with you on this whatever. And for a lot of people that confirmed their view, the whole thing was just cooked up between two politicians and all the process that was flawed that James talked about was unnecessary because Blair had agreed to go along with Bush and Parliament, Cabinet, Civil Service, none of it really matters. In a way, the most striking thing for me um, in this report is is the fact that this was not a process that was driven as much as we thought by Tony Blair. It is almost as if every department in government was keen for this war. Every department was pushing in the direction of we want to believe the evidence. Uh, we want everyone else to believe the evidence. Uh, we want to believe Tony Blair. We want to believe the Americans. And I just think the whole system was geared at the time to going along with a half-baked um, decision. And I think this is this is what Chilcot, in a way, illuminates, is, is precisely that it wasn't only t- Tony Blair 
it was the system. Yes, there were one or two. I agree with that very much. There were one or two exceptions, actually, and I, I should have made that. A Robin Cook. Yes, indeed, but Absolutely. also Eliza Manning and Buller. I think yeah. you know MI5 in the run up to 2003 was was saying to Blair there will be significant blowback from Al Qaeda if we do this, and one of the things that I think. He, he says, Chilcott, is that that was ignored. Uh, and, you know, I, I remember yeah. this, the time because I, I covered the war and I remember that um, we had, you know, every time we had doubts, uh, whether it was about the weapons of mass destruction uh, or, you know, some of us who really knew Iraq at the time, what would be the impact of, uh, of an invasion? Uh, there was... The, because the mood was so ready for war, nobody wanted to listen at the time. And you have to remember that this is a post 9-11 period where essentially it was almost as if, you know, the Americans needed another war. And so did Blair, because in his he he had he, he was predisposed uh, to the sort of the neocon perspective on um, on the Middle East, because James and um, Mr. Blair gave this. You talked about his commanding position. He gave this two-hour press conference this week. We gave a long, very emotional statement, probably more of the most emotional times I've seen Mr. Blair speak, and then took questions from every journalist who was in the room and answered every question. He also underwent a half an hour grilling on the Today programme from John Humphreys this morning. And, um, you know, he kept saying, I'm, you know, I would not, I'm sorry, although I'm not quite sure what he was sorry for, um, but then said, you know, I would, I would, if you were in my shoes, what would you have done differently? And he reflected on that post 9-11 age and also the fact, you know, his question ultimately always is, is the world a better place without Saddam? And he says to any people who challenge his justification for war, answer that question. Well, there's a number of points there. First of all, an observation, you're absolutely right. What we've seen from Blair in the last day is what he and Alistair Campbell call the masochism strategy. He believes that part of the kind of atoning for what happened is to expose himself as much as possible to as many questions and as much interrogation on the issue. And so you detect the hand of Alistair Campbell in Tony Blair's oh, Well, I wouldn't say that. No, no, no. This was something that was well established from the time of 2004. Mm. He, he was doing that then. But people forget Blair did the most extraordinary number of press conferences and interviews on it at the time. Broadly speaking, in terms of what Blair is saying, He's basically reduced to a very, very small island of defence now. Um, One part of that defence is to say, I didn't lie. I didn't deliberately deceive. And there, I think, Chilcott does not challenge that directly. But it is very hard to make the accusation that somebody deliberately deceived. It requires a, a real insight into motivation and so on at the time. So that hasn't happened. Um, the second issue is, I had to take a decision. Um, now... My own view is that people sometimes forget that, yes, he did have to take a decision. He had to face an external circumstance, as Ruler says, that Bush was going for it, and he went one way and not the other. And I suppose you could make the argument that he was pressing Bush for more time for the UN and for the inspectors to do their work, and it was Bush who said time was up. Even so, I accept an argument that Ruler makes, that in the end, Blair is too... um, obsessed by his own um, his own insight into what is right to actually be uh, to be right it, it's almost too arrogant I, I think that is your view isn't it yeah i mean i i find it disturbing that he is still trying to justify the decision i think what he should be saying right now is i made 
uh, a historic mistake and I take responsibility. But he says this and this and then tries to find uh, justification for having invaded Iraq and toppling Saddam Hussein. I've never had a problem with toppling Saddam Hussein if this had been a humanitarian intervention fought on the basis of a humanitarian intervention and not on the basis of a false premise of weapons of mass destruction. But the point is that today, uh, when, you know, when we look back, I would think that his job, his role was to actually stop this sort of massive, massive pressure that was coming from the Americans and to which his own government was responding. So instead, he should have been the buffer. He is the one who actually knew the Middle East better than than the Americans at the time, and he should have been the buffer. One of the things I found striking as well in the summary of the Chilcot report, James, was this fact that um, Sir John found that Blair overstated his influence on the Americans, that throughout the process he was trying to say to people, you know, we can influence Americans, we can push them, but ultimately that was that was, that was not as clear as he said it was at the time. Yes, Blair has always seen himself as the great persuader. Um, this is in distinction to Gordon Brown. I think I always felt this at the time. Blair was the persuader, the barrister, the man who could take a case and win an argument. Brown was always much more the preacher, an American-style preacher on a pulpit. That's always been his style. And Blair felt that he was able to marshal an argument and persuade two constituencies. First, the White House, that they needed to delay, and secondly, the British people about the, the case for action. But in the end, it was certainly... A mis- he persuaded the British in the end. Although there were a million people demonstrating, he did win in the House of Commons. Um, but Bush, he couldn't. In the end, I think what comes out is that the Americans were simply not prepared to wait any longer. And Bush is really quite dismissive of Blair in the end and of his efforts. Um, personally, I think one of the things which is most dispiriting about this period is that while Blair is being hung out to dry, and many people would say justifiably, remarkably little of this is happening in the American context. You've never seen this kind of inquiry in the US into why Bush and Cheney were allowed to get away with what they did, because they did enormous damage to America's position in the world. And finally, Rula, do you th- has this changed your perception of Tony Blair at all? Um, I mean, not really, because a lot of a lot of the sort of broad lines of Chilcot had come out before. And, um, you know, having having been a reporter, having been in Iraq during that period, a lot of things were even apparent uh, at that time, in particular, the lack of preparation for the aftermath of uh, of the war. And so I'm not I'm not surprised. I hope that this is this brings some closure uh, to to um, to this debate, um, and that the right lessons will be learned. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you for all my guests for joining. We'll be back for another instalment of FT Politics next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT, and I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday at FT.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Um, slash podcasts.